Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. For years, ParCast has worked tirelessly to bring you an unprecedented look at history's most radical true crime events. Your support has not only allowed us to keep exploring these stories, but has driven us to keep expanding as well. So as a thank you to the ParCast listeners, I am honored to announce the release of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's available on July 12th, and you can pre-order it today at parcast.com cults. The Branch Davidians, The Anthill Kids, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults combs through the terrifying details never explored in any of Parcast's series before. This is a passion project only made possible by you. So we truly hope you'll enjoy it. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. November 1st, 1909 was an election night in England. In the sleepy town of Staley Bridge, men gathered around tables at the local pub, They chatted eagerly, waiting for the results to come in. But then, a bell rang out from the old mansion on the hill, Gorse Hall. The crowd stopped sipping their ales for just a moment. Everyone knew of the hall and the reclusive businessman who owned it, George Harry Storrs. Many thought that George had gone mad. For months, he claimed that a stranger was trying to break into his house. He'd installed the bell to contact police the next time he saw the man. But many in Staley Bridge thought this was a paranoid fantasy and that George was nothing but an overgrown boy, crying wolf. The pub goers returned to their election night festivities. They trusted that the town constables were on their way to calm George down, just like every time before. They didn't even notice when the chimes died out. Little did they know, that bell would never ring again. Because this time, and maybe for the first time, George Storrs hadn't cried wolf. He'd been stabbed to death in Gorse Hall. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the murder of George Harry Storrs. This week, we'll cover George's fateful move into Gorse Hall and his growing sense that someone was watching him. Next week, we'll cover the fallout from George's murder and meet the two men suspected of this gruesome crime. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. From the moment he was born on April 20th, 1860, George Harry Storrs led a charmed life. His father, William Storrs, was a wealthy contractor, responsible for some of the most impressive buildings in North England. George grew up on his family's estate of Fernbank in Staleybridge, England. Of the three boys who made up William Storrs and Sons, George was the most invested in the family business. When he was just 13 years old, George left school to work alongside his father full-time. And in his early 20s, he took control of the business and transformed it into an empire. George turned William Storrs and Sons into a full-blown building and manufacturing conglomerate. He opened cotton and textile mills, ran brick factories, and sold construction equipment. And he became remarkably wealthy doing it. But even as the business flourished... George's parents worried that he was missing something. He was so focused on building upon his father's legacy, he didn't seem to have time for a family of his own. Everyone around George wanted him to find a wife, but they knew it wouldn't be easy. He was a standoffish homebody and only went to town once a week to go to church. And if anything, these visits damaged his reputation even further. Do you see who's sitting in front of you? That's George Storrs. I've been watching him the entire service. I don't think he opened his mouth one time. What an odd man. Oh, wait. He's taking the collection plate. At least he does something good with all that money. He's searching in his pockets. <gasps> Was that a half penny? He's one of the richest men in the parish. And all he can give is a single half penny? I take back what I said. He's not charitable at all. He's just a sad, lonely miser. But George didn't pay any mind to the rumors that circulated around him. He remained buried in his work for years. By 1890, he was entering his early 30s and still living at Fernbank. Naturally, his parents were concerned. Yes? The table's been set, dear. Won't you come and join us for dinner tonight? Here in the study will be suitable. Thank you. Come now, George. You only leave this room for work, and then it's right back for more of the same. It's a busy time for the company. Surely Father has explained. Oh, come now. It's always busy for you. You should relax a bit, attend to your personal affairs, and find a good woman to marry. In time, I will settle down. I haven't found a suitable match yet. You aren't going to find her in this office. You should be out and about in the square, going to the theater, or joining a social club. Anywhere that's not your blasted desk. <sighs> Fine. Why don't we start by venturing downstairs for dinner? Very well, George. Very well. George Storr's parents weren't the only ones pressuring him to marry. His good friend Robert Innes also insisted on finding him a wife, but Robert's methods were a bit more persuasive. I'll make you a wager, George. I think that I've found the perfect woman for you. And if you meet with her, you'll get my earnings for the month. 
the whole month? Ah, I know the way to your heart. You'll meet her tonight. The carriage will be waiting at 7 o'clock. May I ask the name of this great woman? Mary Middleton. Though, I've been told she prefers Maggie. She's here on holiday. I see. I met her yesterday when I stopped by my neighbor's place. She's lovely, whip-smart, and lucky for you, entirely immune to my charms. I couldn't get so much as a smile out of her, which means she's perfect for you. Robert, you're the only man who can insult and convince me at the same time. You have a deal. Maggie Middleton was 33 years old, and because she was unmarried, she was a bit of a social outcast. She lived alone with her father, and much like George, she was seen as cold and withdrawn. She wasn't looking for love when she met George, and neither was he. But they got along surprisingly well. What a lovely dinner! Now, how about a walk through the grounds? George, Maggie, perhaps you'd like some time alone? I really should be heading home. Yeah, I, I've got work in the morning. Excuses, excuses. Just a few minutes outside to settle the stomach. Go on. <laughs> this is when I'm supposed to take your hand, isn't it? And quote poetry at you or something. You don't have to. Affection isn't my forte. And I've always preferred prose. Very well. Let's uh, walk, then. After that fateful dinner, George and Maggie started meeting up at the theater and taking long strolls around the gardens of Fernbank together. They weren't very romantic, but they seemed to appreciate each other's company. The two of them married about a year after their first meeting on August 11th, 1891. As a wedding present, George's father bought a house for the couple. And not just any house. It was Gorse Hall, an impressive mansion that loomed above Staleybridge. It was close enough to Fernbank to keep in touch with the family, but seemed like the perfect place for George and Maggie to start a life of their own. But if William Storrs knew what was coming, maybe he would have thought twice. Because it was in this quiet refuge that the couple's new beginning crumbled to a tragic end. Coming up, George and Maggie settle into their lives together at Gorse Hall. But George senses that they're not alone. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from Parcast Network. It's the perfect time to grab yourself a second helping of the Spotify original from Parcast, Devious Dads. Our limited series is back with a new collection of episodes from across the network, exposing the unfortunate families whose patriarchs had a penchant for causing pain. Criminal masterminds, spies, murderers. Every Sunday on Spotify, Devious Dads features the fathers who chose to put the fear of God into those they tormented, including their own families. Some men raise children, others raise hell. Be sure to follow season two of Devious Dads free and only on Spotify. And now, back to our story. 
Immediately after the wedding, 31-year-old George Harry Storrs and 33-year-old Maggie Storrs went on a honeymoon in Ireland. In the fall of 1891, they settled in at Gorse Hall. The L-shaped mansion rose from a hill surrounded by dense brush. A formidable metal gate bordered its 45 acres, and the entrance to the drive snaked all the way down to the town square. But the house had its drawbacks, too. Awfully echoey in here, isn't it? Oh, it's not so bad. Hello! Maybe a few rugs would do the trick. I saw some lovely Persian ones for sale in London. Oh, we don't need to buy a rug for this room, do we? What is this, the fifth bedroom? I don't think we'll find much use for it. I think it's for guests. And when do we ever have guests, Maggie? No, I say the best thing to do is leave this room bare and lock it up. No one ever became wealthy by adding adornments to unnecessary bedrooms. I'd never thought about it like that. Your mind never ceases to amaze me. Because George was so frugal, much of the house was left untouched and unexplored. The well-used areas, like the hallways and study, were decorated very minimally. It certainly sounds like an eerie place to live. But George and Maggie were nothing if not logical, and they seemed to have no problem living in the cavernous mansion. And luckily, they weren't completely alone on the grounds. They had three live-in servants, a cook, a housemaid, and a coachman. Aside from the trailing echoes of their footsteps, Gorse Hall remained quiet. That all changed when Maggie received some devastating news. Her sister had passed away, and she'd left behind a nine-year-old daughter named Marion. And so just three months into their marriage, Maggie came to George with a request. I hope I'm not disturbing you. Certainly not. How are you? Feeling, I mean. As well as one is to be expected, I suppose. Listen, George, I must ask a favor. It's regarding my niece, Marion, or our niece, I suppose. She's not even ten years old, and I can't bear to think of her in an orphanage. I thought we could offer her a room here. Say no more. She can move in immediately. I'll have the maid prepare one of the rooms for her straight away. In December of 1901, nine-year-old Marion Lindley moved into Gorse Hall with her aunt and uncle. She was a boisterous child and was like a ray of sunshine in the dreary manor. George and Maggie probably didn't plan on having children, but they became incredibly fond of their young niece and treated her like their own daughter. As the years passed and Marion entered her teens, she matured into a proper socialite. She was remarkably outgoing, the complete opposite of her aunt and uncle. But she wasn't ignorant of the rumors about the peculiar couple. Honestly, Marion, I don't know how you sleep at night in that dusty old hall. <laughs> or how you could possibly entertain Mr. and Mrs. Stores. I've never seen a pleasant look on their faces. They must be dreadful company. Warm as corpses, both of them. It's a miracle two such solemn people managed to find one another. <laughs> and they lived miserably ever after. <laughs> well, I find them both brilliant. They don't pretend to be anything other than who they are. It's refreshing. We were only teasing, Marion. 
we didn't mean to upset you. It's just all silly talk. Then I suggest you stop listening. Anyone who would have a harsh word to utter against my aunt and uncle knows nothing of their true character. Marion never let the town gossip affect her relationship with her family. She enjoyed George and Maggie's quiet nature, and she was proud to live at Gorse Hall. Aside from Marion's comings and goings, few passed through the hall's gates for many years. That is, until Friday, September 10th, 1909. <laughs> Officers! There's been a shooting at Gorse Hall! Men, grab your things and run up that hill, now! Any idea who did it? Not in the slightest. I heard two rounds and bolted. For all I know, Mr. Storrs could be dead by now. It's hard to believe a random drunkard got all the way up here by chance. Crime doesn't climb, as they say. But a man of Mr. Storrs' stature must have some enemies, right? I don't know, sir. He's only ever been good to me, and I'm terribly worried about him. Please, hurry! The police entered the house on high alert, looking for any sign of a struggle. The housemaid led them to the dining room where three people were waiting. 49-year-old George, 51-year-old Maggie, and a rare guest. Georgina McDonald, a friend of Maggie's who'd been visiting from out of town. The group was clearly shaken up, but it didn't look like anyone had been injured. George directed them to the parlor. The officers stepped inside and noticed that a window was broken. But other than that, nothing was amiss. Confused, they asked George what happened. At 9.30, Maggie and Miss McDonald sat at the table waiting for supper to be served. I was seated at the armchair by the fireplace. I glanced up from my reading and saw a man lurking just outside this window. Did you get a good look at him? The light from the room made it impossible, but I tried. I hurried over to investigate. That's when the man says, clear as day, hands up or I'll shoot. Before I have time to respond, he shoves the barrel of the gun right through the window and it shatters. Instinctively, I shut the blinds. Then the gunman fired two rounds. And these were fired through the window, you say? Yes. Naturally, I, I set out to confront him, but Maggie grabbed me by the arm and implored me to consider otherwise. The madman got away. I fear he could return at any time, officers. Convinced by George's story, the officers searched every inch of the estate, but the shattered window was still the only sign of an intruder. As far as the police could tell, there were no shell casings, bullets, or bullet holes anywhere on the premises. By the next morning, the police were doubting George's story. But when they told him about the lack of evidence, he refused to budge. Listen, Storrs, just between you and me... My men can't find any evidence of a gun fired inside the home. We even dusted the windows for residue. Nothing. He had shoved the barrel of the gun through the window first. That's why it shattered. He must have broken the window and, and, and then discharged the rounds outside. I'd already closed the blind, so it was impossible to tell. I see. And any idea who might have had a reason to come after you? Any disgruntled employees looking for revenge? I don't think so. Very well, then. We'll continue the investigation on our own and let you know if anything turns up. 
Uh, officer, I, I feel like it would be best to leave a few of your men here tonight. Maybe for a few nights, or, or weeks even. <sighs> I don't know if we have the manpower, but I'll look into it. You could always reach us by telephone. And Gorse Hall isn't wired for those things, but I do need a way to contact you quickly. What about a bell? A bell, you say? Well, not just any handbell. That, that would be absurd. A large bell, like a, a cathedral. Loud enough that it would be impossible to dismiss from anywhere in Staley Bridge. Well, George, if the bell would bring you some peace of mind, I think it would be a fine idea. The police privately concluded that there was no gunman that night. They didn't think anyone had a sufficient motive to hurt, much less kill, George or his family. Maybe George saw a mischievous teenager or a wandering drunk and thought they were a killer. It's also possible that George was afraid of something or someone and staged the break-in to convince the police to set up nightly patrols at Gorse Hall. Whatever happened that night, it only made George's paranoia worse. Three days after the possible break-in, George installed a church bell on top of the mansion. For seven weeks, the bell sat undisturbed, gathering dust. But at midnight on October 29th, 1909, it finally rang. Coming up, we'll talk more about George's growing obsession. And now, back to our story. On October 29th, 1909, at around midnight, the bell chimed for the first time. Policemen from across Staley Bridge abandoned their posts and rushed up the long, winding drive towards the Great Hall. Within minutes, they arrived at the porch and were stunned by what they found. There, standing casually in his robe, was 49-year-old George Storrs. He had a gold pocket watch open in the palm of his hand. That's enough. <laughs> Splendid! Absolutely marvelous! Louder than the Cathedral of Manchester, wouldn't you reckon, officers? Where's the gunman, Stores? Well, that's for you to find out, isn't it? I only wanted to ensure the bell would work as intended should the trespasser return. And it has! Only took 15 minutes to bring the lot of you here. So, no emergency then? Quite the opposite. I think this calls for a celebration. How about a round of mulled ale? I'm afraid it's not a sociable hour for us, George. Come on, men. Back to your posts. Two of you will remain here, correct? In case the ringing should attract the madmen to return? To be sure, sir. We'll keep them here, all right. Very well, then. Good night to you, officers, and best of luck. After this false alarm, the police grew even more leery of George and his mysterious intruder. They'd searched the grounds multiple times in the last two months, and they hadn't found any evidence. So the police didn't think it was necessary to tell George they wouldn't be available on the evening of November 1st. It was election night, and all of the officers would be busy looking out for political agitators. George had been safe up until now, and they assumed he'd be none the wiser. And they were right. On the evening of November 1st, 1909, George sat down to a candlelit dinner with Maggie and Marion. 
The family chatted and settled in to enjoy a quiet evening. The thought of a trespasser didn't even cross their minds. Little did they know this would be their final meal together. Down the hall, the cook carried a fresh jar of milk into the kitchen. Then she noticed a strange shape in the corner. It was a man crouching in the shadows. He wore a dark hat in a tweed suit. For a moment, the cook thought it was one of her colleagues, the coachman, John Worrell. Heavens, John! (laughs) What are you getting at trying to scare a woman of my age? (gasps) Oh, God, be with me. Say a word, and I'll shoot. The cook noticed a revolver clutched in the stranger's left hand. She turned and ran back out of the kitchen door, yelling, There's a man in the house! The gunman burst out of the kitchen and chased the cook down the hall. George, Marion, and Maggie heard the screams from the dining room. The two women reached for each other in a panic, and George charged towards the armed intruder. The man was lanky with long features. He couldn't have been more than 30 years old. Tufts of blonde hair poked out from under his cap, and the wooden handle of a knife stuck out from his waistband. As George barreled toward the intruder, the young man raised the revolver and pointed it directly at George. Now I've got you. George was undeterred. He lunged for the gun and wrestled with the intruder. As the two men engaged in a hand-to-hand struggle, Maggie Storrs scanned the hallway for a weapon. Then she noticed something hanging on the wall. It was one of the few pieces of decoration in the house, a memento from the couple's honeymoon in Ireland, a mounted pair of walking sticks with silver handles, also referred to as shillelaghs. She rushed to the wall and pulled one free. The men were still locked in a scuffle on the floor. She carefully advanced toward them and hoisted the shillelagh above her head. The intruder looked up to see Maggie, and for the first time he appeared genuinely frightened. Maggie dropped the shillelagh into George's hands and swiped the gun away from the stranger. She darted up the stairs, still clutching the revolver. She needed to ring the bell. Marion saw her Aunt Maggie rush by and assumed she'd gone to lock herself in a room. Thinking of no other recourse, she left the two men struggling in the front hall and took off in a frantic search for help. Marion heard the chimes of the bell as she ran into Staleybridge. She didn't know where to go. She just needed to tell someone. She heard it before she saw it. The sounds of music and the buzz of conversation coming from the pub. Women were rarely permitted inside, but Marion didn't care. Many of the attendees froze at the sight of red-faced Marion as she stumbled into the hall. The young socialite cried out to the confused onlookers. My uncle is being murdered! Soon enough, a group of men gathered from the pub set off towards the mansion, but it was too late. The strange man escaped from Gorse Hall before anyone could get there. He left George Storr's body in his own kitchen and disappeared into the night. But soon enough, one of the greatest manhunts in 20th century England would be organized to find him. Thank you.
Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode on the mystery of Gorse Hall. For more information on the mystery, we found the stabbing of George Harry Stores by Jonathan Goodman extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Ellie Margolis, with writing assistance by Kylie Harrington and Giles Hofseth, fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Kai Jordan, Ellie Schiff, and Rebecca Thomas. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast Network. Devious Dads is back for a second season and a new collection of hair-raising episodes from across our catalog of shows. Every Sunday, meet the parents who were anything but protectors. Follow Devious Dads free and only on Spotify. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. Exciting news. Parcast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, is now available for pre-order at parcast.com slash cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before. Details which haven't even been explored in our Cults podcast. Visit parcast.com cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them.